0: America.
1: Good morning, New York. This is the Catswell Table, John Catswell. He is here Sunday morning. We have a report for you. What the heck is going on in the tri-state area? We have Governor David Patterson, Congressman Peter King, Steve Cates to talk about, well, of space. Zach Williams on Albany, Ruben Diaz, the Hispanic community is getting screwed, and it's his 80th birthday today, Andrew Andrew Amsbrose, the the president of the Fire Department Union, and he is upset with these uh, electric bikes and electric cars, and let's start off with Michael Stoller on a report of the real estate industry.
2: Good morning, this is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have the honor of having Bruce Mosler, the chairman of global brokerage at Cushman and Wakefield. Also, at one time, the president and CEO of the company. So, Bruce, I really want the the truth. The the other day you were quoted, we should not take for granted that the city will simply recover because we have always in the past. This is a moment in time when we should not take for granted that New York will just be fine. It will be fine, but provided we take the necessary action. What do you mean by that, and what's the necessary action?
3: Yeah, Michael, I said that with intent. Um, New York City is still the financial capital world, are still the tech capital world. When you compare the challenges we face to other cities, other tech, shall we say, hubs, uh, we look pretty good. But the challenges that we face are significant. We have 90 million square feet vacant. We have a capital markets liquidity crisis that's impending, or here, take your pick. At the end of the day, we have a city that faces challenges with regards to crime. Now, I think the mayor and the governor are working hard at it. We should give them props. We should give them time, and we should support them. But let's understand that this city has obstacles to overcome, including the budget that the city is going to debate over and hopefully resolve expeditiously
2: what's going on? I know you specialized at one time in Brookfield West and the, the Manhattan Hudson West, yes, Manhattan sir. West and the Hudson Yards area. What's happening over there? I see the rents are over a hundred dollars yes. a foot over there, but people don't take into consideration the the concessions which really reduce the rent significantly.
3: well, so, I'm going to come back to this severe bifurcation in the marketplace. We've seen this flight to quality. It's real. It's not just something that people are talking about. People are going to buildings that have light and air amenities that are part of a 24-7 live-work place. So Manhattan West has the benefit of being all those things. Properties that have those assets, 250,000 feet of retail that's been curated um, for the tenancies there, at the end of the day those assets are performing. They're outperforming. So yeah, there's concessions, but they're market concessions. They're truly outperforming on the pro forma based on the flight to quality.
2: You know, we're here on Third uh, Avenue, 800 Third Avenue at the studios of WABC. Yes. Um, what's happening on the Third Avenue market?
3: So it's almost building by building, case by case. And this is a point that um, I want to make where assets are or can be reinvested. in. let's let's just understand with the rise of interest rates certain assets when you look at the cost to renovate the cost to either convert or in this case to bring them up to par where they need to be to be a viable office building sometimes investors can and sometimes they can't where they can and where they invest asset by asset block by block some are performing and some are not and most of that is based upon the ability to reinvest
2: what about the B and C and the D office buildings which are all around which happens to be part of the signature bank portfolio and some other banks' portfolio at a certain level.
3: Yeah, well, look, I I can't comment on a specific portfolio. I can simply say that that's no, c and
2: assets. I'm, that's what I'm really yeah, talking so, about. So,
3: C&D assets have a harder, you know, road to hoe. At the end of the day, the investment has got to be more substantial. You have to look at whether it's, whether the product is obsolete because of the design element, because of what tenancies are requiring. Look, Businesses today go where they can recruit and retain their workforce of the future It is that is the number one driver behind where they go and how they go. They're also becoming more efficient, right? We are dealing with a hybrid workforce today in a workplace The notion that people will come back to work one or two days. I think is off the table I think we've we've sort of seen the reality. It's probably three or four days a week How much does that affect the footprint not dramatically? But the drive towards more efficiencies, which was there pre-pandemic, continues. So we're seeing smaller footprints. We're seeing people that want to go to places where it's all about their workforce. And their workforce today want amenities. They want light and air. They want the ability to go out and have shopping and retail and eateries at their fingertips. These are all drivers behind what's happening in our marketplace. What
2: about the conversion of offices to residential?
3: Uh, look, I think we have to be realistic. Some of our product is now re- approaching 100 years old. Some of that product is not going to be converted. The cost is prohibitive at the end of the day, but also the asset itself just doesn't lend itself. So we have to be realistic. We have to look at our marketplace. It's 430 million feet today and say, what will it be tomorrow? What's truly obsolete? A portion of it will be obsolete. At the end of the day, whether that means our marketplace is four, four, 400 or 390, has yet to be determined
2: in the same way that you were talking about crime over there and certain things have to be taken care of mm-hmm. in order to convert an office building i believe that the government has to come in like the 421 g's mm-hmm. of, uh, of lower manhattan i don't i haven't heard of any special tax advantages yet
3: i agree with you um i think michael we have to look at this holistically we have to work in consort with government to determine what kind of master plan can be put in place for various different parts of our city and what incentives should we provide based on where the demand is going to come from. Everything right now is about the demand, right? We, we had pent up demand post the pandemic in 2022. So we saw significant take up. Now we're seeing demand moderate this year because mostly people are looking at relocating when they have, when it's least driven, or they have reason to consolidate and, at the end of the day, shrink their footprint.
2: What about the suburban, the other boroughs, okay, as opposed to Manhattan, the office market? How do you see that?
3: Um, Very much as I do Manhattan. Where you're seeing the gravitational pull is towards transportation hubs. So when you're looking at suburbia, I think you have to look at where are their excellent transportation hubs, where have those hubs been invested in. That's where I think you'll see investment work and i think you'll see at the end of the day demand take off so, so
2: which neighborhoods are you specifically talking
3: uh, listen I, I, I look i want to be careful to say this because this is an evolving conversation but i would tell you that yes we can't uh, look midtown grand central area um, that is seeing significant investment and significant demand same thing for the for the west side that's where you could put the where you could build the most significant properties at the end of the day with transportation as an asset with the the rest of the amenities that are necessary so i think those things continue
2: how do you basically see the year we're here in april now That's a good question
3: so so look i think this year compared to last year last was a, was, a, was a year in which we saw significant anchor tenancy commitments i think this year's a little different we're not seeing the the big tenancies the million square foot or the 800 pound
2: I I mean look Facebook gave back certain properties
3: yeah yeah, but look some of that is is there's growth there's contraction there'll be growth again in the tech sector we remain the tech hub um in the United States no question about that this is a year in which I think we're going to see mid-size commitments the the 100 to two hundred thousand square foot deals that are primarily lease driven or as I said before we will see relocation based on the ability to shrink the footprint and invest capital and make it work economically. Businesses this year are focused on their run rate and capital preservation. Um, that's, that's the fact. The, the reality is I think we'll grow again in 23 or 24, I should say. Um, but this is a year where I think we're going to see a different type of commitment.
2: Okay. I think New York City is very resilient, and I believe that Bruce Mosler is a big advocate of the city, as so was I. And I'd like to thank you for being here today.
1: It is an honor to be with you. Uh, this is the catch round table. We'll be right back. With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he's the one that uh, takes our mind and expands it on what the heck is going on up uh, in the uh, skies. Uh, Steve, uh, Sunday morning, what's going on? First of all, we had a tragedy a few days ago uh, with the rocket blowing up. Uh, Any uh, gut feeling what happened?
5: Well, first of all, good morning, John. On this Sunday morning, Thursday's launch, which even Elon Musk said, and he put this out, the press reported it, that they don't want to expect or they couldn't expect perfection on this. These are test launches. But what happened is we found out 928 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Thursday, this big, almost 400-foot stack rocket, this giant booster rocket using, get a load of this, folks, 33 Raptor engines, pushed this rocket up past the launch pad. It got up to about 127,000 feet. And then something went wrong. And the something might be, John, that some of those Raptor engines, allegedly we're hearing about five of the 33, may not have worked properly. So the obvious problem is the separation of Starship from the booster. It made it up to that height. And then, obviously, it was a disconnect effort. So the whole rocket, as you can see it in the videos, maybe people watched it, you see the thing starting to spiral around. But what's really interesting, John, is let's talk about where space begins. This is a question that many people may not know. It's called the Kármán line, and officially it's 62.14 miles above the Earth, translating to some 328,000, you know, some odd feet and change. So this rocket never actually made it there, but just to go from the surface of the Earth to cross the Kármán line, it only takes with a proper rocket two and a half minutes and to get to orbit, it takes eight and a half minutes. So, this is a test flight. You see a lot of the people at SpaceX cheering, and people may be wondering, well, why would you spend three billion dollars on a big fireball? They're claiming it's a, it's a success. Excuse me, and we have a long way to go. They're saying to perfect this. It's it's an interesting kind of a dichotomy there, don't you think?
1: Well, I, I'll tell you. This. billion is a lot of money, even if you were insured, uh, I'm sure the insurance company will put it into the cost of your insurance for the next three or four flights.
5: Absolutely. And another thing that he needs, that's Elon Musk and SpaceX, they need a new FAA license. They got one, and it was a long process, and that's a long story, but to make it short, there's 75 compliance items that SpaceX has to have down there in Boca Chica for Starbase. They have to have like a biologist on staff, they have to have ways that they can prove that it will not affect the environment, shrapnel issues, and get a load of this, they can't launch on holidays, and they want to make sure that the beaches, they don't take away from the tourism down there, but overall, John, I don't know, I don't know how to say this, being a space fan like yourself and following this all the time, I gather overall, their goal was to get the big baby off the launch pad and at least to move it up with these Raptor engines. So this was the most powerful rocket launch to date of any rocket, allegedly between, um, say, 12 to 16 million pounds of thrust, and the old Apollo Saturn V, which is still a great rocket, had 7.5 million pounds of thrust. It's open season on uh, what people might think about, you know, pro or con, but Elon Musk seems to be well-tempered, and uh, he made that statement. You know, this is a test flight.
1: Uh, and uh, through my uh, mind and my education, I think there's got to be an easier way to to take uh, equipment into space. Uh, there is, remember John. Me there you is. talked about uh, anti-gravity, and um, at what point does the government release that?
5: You know, John, just the other day, I don't have all the details, I'll investigate that for the audience here on the CATS Roundtable but they had a very big grilling in congress on what these uap's really are and i don't know if we'll ever get the right answer but most of that technology that's probably out there you're right it's either otherworldly or somehow we've developed this anti-gravity type technology but that's something but you gotta give credit to spacex with this particular rocket the starship and the booster you can actually lift hundred and sixty five tons into orbit but that's another story as we talk about but
1: john in conclusion, if it you're save family, a, Hey, that's fossil fuel uh, efficient. <laughs> uh, it'll save a lot of fossil fuel.
5: Absolutely, my friend. But well, we always talk, John, about the mystery of the week, and this goes to the realm of aviation, another area that, of course, you have a lot of expertise in. But the strangest one this week, we can think about it. It's almost 10 years about what really happened to Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 and that's still out there and some of the theories were that the captain i mean this goes maybe to the bizarre but who knows that he locked the copilot out of the cockpit depressurized the cabin thus forcing the uh you know passengers on board to you know die a slow death from no oxygen while he was on a special oxygen system that he had turned off all the electronics on this particular aircraft and one of the strangest theories of all is that the aircraft was carrying from Kuala Lumpur to its destination of Beijing, China, so many lithium-ion batteries. Some even speculate, I don't know how accurate it is, that the fire could have started in the cargo hold, but that's so conspiratorial, the whole thing. And they only found, they say, 33 pieces of that aircraft, they think, and only three were positively identified as coming to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. I wonder what your thoughts are, knowing your background in aviation.
1: Well, if it's true they had those lithium ion batteries, we're finding out more and more that those uh, batteries are uh, a uh, serious, serious item. And uh, uh, at some point, and uh, you heard it first, uh, they're not going to allow you to put it into a garage in your home. Because if that car blows up, it's going to take down your whole house and nobody can put out the fire.
5: And that's strange, John, and again, not to attack Tesla or any of the electric companies, but we had a Tesla for a while, and we sold it, not because we didn't like the car, but the reality is, when you find out on some of these vehicles that the battery pack replacement is an extremely expensive deal, obviously, in this particular case, as we follow the things that you're talking about in the you know, oil and gas industry, obviously, not to change subjects, but I think you're obviously are the leader of this. We need to drill. We need to give ourselves more of that fossil fuel, Because the whole transfer, you know, we should it should be a choice, obviously, that individuals want to get an electric car and not a mandate from the government. But I know that's a little out of the realm of what we normally talk about here on uh, the Sunday morning to open people's minds up.
1: It's all science. uh, But uh, uh, anything else?
5: uh? Yes. I wanted to always give the Live Sky report. And that's what people can actually see. So hopefully we're opening up their minds. Now we can open up their eyes. If you look to the skies as we move into this last portion of April, the Lyrid meteor shower continues with the dark skies. The moon's not in the way right now. Look into the northeast sky after midnight. A bright star called Vega, which is a star 25 light years away, that's the origin point of Lyrid's. If you see a few, count yourself as lucky because it's one of the oldest meteor showers of all. And as we've talked in the past, John that life from these particular objects like comets may have seeded the universe and solar systems, another interesting story. And we want to let people know that go to WABCradio.com for the next updated Dr. Sky blog, which contains all information about what you and yours can see in our beautiful May 2023 skies as we bring in the beautiful full flower moon in the early first week of May. Great stuff to talk about.
1: Thank you. Steve Cates, Dr. Sky, thank you so much for expanding our minds, and we'll catch up with you again uh, next week.
5: Thank you, John. Good to be with you and the listeners.
1: With us today is former Congressman Peter King, and so many things are happening in the world. Good morning, uh, Congressman King. Uh, Where should we start this morning? Good morning,
6: John. I'll tell you, it's hard to decide where to start. Uh, Probably a main issue to me this week to come up was this whole thing about the uh, letter that the intelligence community Put together back in 2020, saying that uh, everything about Hunter Biden was just a Russian hoax. It turns out the hoax was being carried out by uh, friends of the, uh, the Biden administration. Uh, again, the reports we have now are that uh, Tony Blinken, who was a foreign policy advisor to Joe Biden then and is now the Secretary of State, he went to Mike Morrell, who was former a top man, a very top man in the CIA, and uh, asked him to get together a bunch of former intelligence uh, leaders to uh, uh, write up a letter and sign it saying that everything about Hunter Biden was just part of a Russian conspiracy, that there was nothing to uh, any of the allegations against Hunter Biden, that uh, Russia was using this, and that uh, somehow I guess that meant that Russia was supporting Trump. And uh, now it turns out that uh, none of them even knew what it was about at all. Any of those 41 or 42, whatever number it was,
1: well, it was 11. actually 51, 51 and even governor Patterson on Friday's uh, show said, uh, I was a little suspicious. Why so many 51? I mean, what, what, what bothers me and bothers other people, 51 people, uh, signed, signed it and didn't even know, uh, never checked out the facts.
6: I agree totally with governor Patterson. Uh, First of all, before you even get into something like that, you should have a very detailed knowledge to say that this has all the appearance of Russian uh, uh, espionage or Russian activity. Before you can say something like that, you would have to study something inside out. And now you have over 50 people without even seeing or reading anything, just saying it. And to allow themselves to be used in a presidential campaign the way they were. And Joe Biden certainly used it during the debate, talking about all these uh, intelligence leaders, all these experts. He said that this was Russian collusion. The fact is, there was nothing, no involvement of in the Russians at all. Any collusion or any any type of uh, bad activity was being carried out by the Biden uh, camp and by Hunter Biden. Obviously, the charges against Hunter Biden are real. These are very significant. They're right now, apparently, uh, Hunter Biden will be meeting with the you with know, the Justice Department this week. Uh, and uh, that again was one of those issues that, if it gone the other way, certainly you know could have tipped the uh, 2020 presidential election. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, with all his faults uh, and a lot of his uh, you know, wounds are self-inflicted. The fact is he was right on this. He was 100 percent right. Joe Biden was 100 percent wrong. And yet not only did these intelligence experts sign on to a letter that they knew almost nothing about, but the media went along with it. They never made any attempt to ask the question that David Patterson asked. Well, how do you talk to those people? What have you studied? How do you know this? How do you know this is part of a Russian plot? And uh, again, it was a failure by the media and it shows just the uh, instinctive uh, uh, hatred and uh, opposition that so many people in the media and the establishment have, the foreign policy establishment, uh, the uh, diplomatic establishment against Donald Trump.
1: And and what bothers uh, people even more, finding all this out, uh, Congressman, Is that uh, on live stage in a in a debate that was the main thing uh, President Biden used against President Trump, and people were horrified, and and it was all crap. It was all wrong. It was all false information. They were conning the American people.
6: They were Biden was conning the American people. These these uh, so called intelligence experts allowed themselves to be used to con the American people, and the media made no effort at all to look into it. They just basically enabled Joe Biden to get away with, I think, one of the – you're talking about a hoax. This was one of the worst hoaxes ever in American presidential history.
1: Well, uh, Congressman King, thank you very much uh, for getting up early this Sunday morning, and we'll catch up again real soon. Great. Thank you, John.
0: You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers. It's the Cats Roundtable.
7: Comes true on Sunday in New York.
1: With us today is Zach Williams, and uh, he has an update of what the heck is going on in Albany. He is the star Albany reporter for the New York Post, the fourth largest newspaper in America now. Zach, what the heck is going on? Well, solely
0: but surely, it looks like we're going to be getting a state budget. You know, Governor Kathy Hochul has held up a final spending plan three weeks, hoping for concessions on cash bail housing, and a whole bunch of other issues from the Democratic supermajority from the state Senate and Assembly. And this week, it looks like we finally got a deal on changing cash bail while the governor seemingly surrendered on her housing plan. So you might say that the score right now is kind of one to three, and here's why. There were two parts to bail that I think are really worth a. Uh, really uh, worth mentioning governor got one. She didn't get neither of the two points <laughs> that you might say she could have gotten from the housing plan. So she's down Uh one, three, you might say, but there's still a lot more budget to go, but there are hopes there might be a deal sometime next week now.
1: Uh, well, I, uh, like I've told everybody, and I've told the governor uh, that the New York state is on the edge. I mean, we're either going to fall off the cliff or, or uh, we're going to uh, make a comeback and, uh, historically, New York has always made a comeback, but this time, for some reason, I worry. And you've been around for a while. How do you feel?
0: Well, to to borrow a phrase from Mario Cuomo, I believe, you know, po- you know, you, you campaign and poetry and govern and prose and politics is the art of the possible, right? And what seemed possible was on bail, at least, was you know, there's a lot of perception that crime is going up, and it has gone up a bit. And, you know, the governor made the case that judges need clarity that on this little part of state law that was really important to bail reform, call it that they have to impose the least restrictive conditions to ensure somebody goes back to court. Now, you've probably seen a lot of stories about repeat offenders in the New York Post, of course. And the governor says, you know, by eliminating that restriction for bail eligible offenses, you know, judges don't have to look at a case and say, hmm, well, I can I can impose bail on this person and try to you know maybe uh, you know I'm not sure what they might do if you release them maybe endanger public safety whatnot um, you know but bail is just to ensure someone's back to court so sometimes judges would say oh I don't think I can impose it because that's still not the least restrictive condition or I got to set bail really low. That would be eliminated for bail eligible uh, offenses. The governor did not secure a second change that opponents had argued would effectively undo decades of state law that says bail is only to ensure you go to court, you know, a so-called dangerousness standard, if you will. And in terms of possible housing, you know, everybody knows that New York, especially the city needs more housing. The question is how do you overcome kind of the nimbyism that we've seen, especially in the suburbs, the governor said, okay, let's make everybody downstate increase housing by 3%, upstate 1%. But if they don't, we'll allow a state board to approve the project anyways, perhaps. So the suburbs were pretty much an open rebellion on this one. And in the end, nothing on housing is going to get done because the governor said, well, if you're not going to do some of my plans, we're not going to do any of my plans. No, uh, no incentives to encourage more housing. No extension of 421A. That's the biggie in the city, and of course, not the mandate. So, you know, at least for now, New Yorkers are not going to <laughs> they're not going to get more clarity on how state government is trying is going to try to boost housing. Even though we all know New York desperately needs more units. You know, I think there was just a lot of complacency all around from everybody: the left, the right, the center. Up and down that, you know, everyone knows how, you know, housing is needed in New York State. And now everyone just kind of throwing up their hands, pointing fingers and saying, "Eh, darn it, we couldn't get it done. It's, you know, it's kind of a shame because I think at least in principle, everyone was in agreement that something had to happen.
1: And it's pretty stupid, especially when you have such high interest rates. Who's going to invest if you don't have some incentives? Yeah,
0: well, you know, there, who who wants to jump on a boat that isn't moving forward, right? I mean, I mean, sometimes, you know, or get in a car that won't, uh, you know, reach its destination. You know, people know we need more housing. People are still in New York. People love New York. It's the most one of the most important cities in the world. Yes, the state in its entirety is facing a problem with uh, losing, uh, you know, losing people to other states. But, you know, in the end, you know, I, I think if you're thinking about investors, don't they want to a, uh, a state where there's going to be enough housing for everybody to live in, a place that, you know, homelessness isn't going to be by default. So eh, it's going to have to wait till after the budget process, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> Zach Williams, thank you. And uh, we'll go day by day and we'll see how far we progress. Thank you for your update for uh, all WABC listeners. And, and we'll talk again real soon. Always a pleasure, John. With us today is Andrew Amsborough. He's the FDNY union uh, head of the uniform. Uh, Firefighters Association of Greater New York and he's the president and uh, there's a lot of new problems around town with these new electric uh, vehicles and electric uh, bicycles Uh, tell us Andrew what's going on
4: well thank you for having me
1: Uh, well first of all
4: these vehicles uh, as we know the electric bikes are causing a a lot of fires Uh, the number of fires coming from electric bicycles is doubling every year and it's already caused six fatalities in, in various fires this year alone. Uh, this is something that uh, 10 years ago didn't exist. And uh, it's just really gro- growing at an alarming rate, the number of
1: fires. The electric cars, they have the same batteries, don't they?
4: Well, again, you have the lithium ion batteries. And uh, what it happens is it makes the vehicle much heavier. Uh, from, I have read some studies that say it could make a vehicle one-third heavier than a, a similar size vehicle that it was a gasoline engine and uh, you know when you're looking at the garage collapse that happened this week you know maybe it's time to ask or, or, you know all the inspections that were previously done for these garages that they need to change their formulas on weight load uh, based on the fact that some of these cars are going to be heavier
1: well they say that uh, the, there may be is uh, like 20 What you say Like 30 percent 40 percent heavier uh, that uh, some of these garages, the the, uh, the floors can't take that kind of weight if you if you have too many electric cars.
4: Yeah, we're talking about tons of weight. You know, just one car alone could have a, a well over a thousand additional pounds. You know, if it's a truck, it could be two thousand pounds. So you know, the batteries are enormous. Uh, there was, and it doesn't. Even, it also affects garages, but it also affects accidents. You know, if someone gets hit by one of these cars in the street, you're getting hit by a much bigger. Uh, a bigger weight, it's much more force. Uh, the head of the NTSB uh, made a statement a couple of years ago that she was concerned with uh, these vehicles and accidents because they are a much larger, you know, amount of weight, and uh, you're better off, uh, you know, getting hit by a smaller vehicle than something that weighs as massive as, as these vehicles.
1: I understood. And now, if I had a garage, if I was a garage owner, uh, what I would do is I would ban electric cars until we, uh, we know we fixed the problem. Instead of uh, having a problem with my whole building,
4: yeah, there's there's definitely uh, should be some uh, new inspections and new calculations done. You know, traditional garages, you know, were probably designed and specified with a certain weight. And if you also look at those uh, lifts that you know they have in the open garages where they lift the vehicles up and stack them, you know, some of those uh, the weight loads may not be appropriate for the vehicles they're putting them on them anymore.
1: Yes, I could see that happening. What else would you like to tell people about the other problems uh, uh, with the FDNY, and, and uh, what else we have to be concerned about?
4: Well, for, well, as far as the uh, you know e-bike fires, uh, you know they obviously are releasing a much uh, different kind of toxins that we were, have been used to, worse, uh, traditionally in, in uh, building and structure fires. And uh, I've asked the commissioner to, uh, you know, kind of basically confiscate gear after fires and send them out for mandatory cleanings, Uh, you know, because we're getting exposed to these heavy metals. We're finding that, you know, we're finding that there are firefighters that were hired after 9-11 that are coming down with cancer with, you know, 15, 16 years on. And this is really something that we should have gotten ahead of a long time ago. Uh, But I'm happy to announce that the the department is... uh, you know, looking into you know what I exactly asked for—that the gear be taken away after a fire and sent out for cleaning—but uh, we're also finding out that uh, the traditional cleaning methods may not even be able to decontaminate the, the gear from the contaminants from heavy metal fires, such as these lithium-ion battery bikes. So you know, we're the, we're, the department's going through the whole process and uh, trying to make sure it's being cleaned properly, but uh, unfortunately, uh, firefighters are going to have to live with this gear while, it, while it's off uh, until these things are determined. They're, it's possible they're going to get back gear that still has contaminants on it with the current cleaning processes. Uh, we, we're probably going to have to upgrade and revamp our entire process.
1: Oh, that sounds like another, another problem in the making. Uh, well, Sunday morning, uh, we're, we're having a black cup of coffee here and, and uh, so many problems in the city. Uh, talk to me as a New York, are you a New York City resident?
4: Uh, well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. About uh, ten years ago, I moved upstate to Rockland County.
1: And, and tell us about the, uh, the the police department is having a mass exodus uh, of their uh, uniform police officers. Is the fire department having any similar uh, problems?
4: Well, we have had problems hiring in the last few years because of COVID, and we're uh, you know short-staffed by about you know five to six hundred firefighters uh, because of that. Uh, you know, probably a few hundred retired early because of the, the vaccine mandate. Uh, they didn't want to be subjected to it. So they just had the time to retire, and they left. So I would say uh, the exodus for us has already happened, and it's hard for us to currently refill what we have. And the membership is being forced to work a lot of overtime because, you know, every every firehouse has their rig staffed. You know, we don't just close them, uh, nor would we want that to happen. But it is causing a a serious overtime spike, and the members are getting beat up.
1: Well, uh, Andrew Ansborough, a president of the Fire Department uh, uh, of New York Union, uniformed uh, firefighters, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, let's talk again real soon.
4: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm always available. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We continue a common sense conversation on the Cats Roundtable, where we listen to all sides. This morning uh, we are with Ruben Diaz uh senior and it's a great
8: weekend for him it's his birthday and happy birthday Mr Diaz thank you Mr Castimperi thank you he's 80 years old 80 but you have the, I, I the you, you have the strength of a 40 year old <laughs> well god is with me god, god is with me you.
1: now you wrote a uh, on this weekend you wrote a op-ed piece, and uh, I read it on your uh, Facebook, uh, and you're very, very angry in what's going on, especially how the Hispanic community has been treated in
8: in, in New York State. Uh, Would you tell our audience a little bit about it? Well, the Hispanic community has always been used and abused by the Democratic Party. We have been the stepping stone for everybody else. When the black community needed a mayor, the Hispanic community was there. When the white needed a mayor or something, we have been there. But now when the Hispanic community needed the support of the black community and the support of the Democratic elected officials, they turned their back on us. And that happened during the nomination of Judge Hector Lasalle a qualified, a well prepared, well educated, with a vast experience, was nominated to be the the the, the chief of the upper division and Andreas Tuacosin Marginari and, to a cousin, and the, the, the 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 state senator practically the Democrats and mostly the black they rejected uh, this Hispanic Puerto Rican judge uh, who qualified, and then, and then to add uh, more pain, they now elected, supported, and uh, nominated Judge uh, Rowan uh, Wilson, a guy that has a record. Of of of, of, free, of, of, of sending free, woman violators, women violators. So, in one, in one, in one hand, and the so say that she's a woman defender. And the other hand, she support and nominated a judge that practically released. Someone that entered into a private house, raped a woman, they gave him 12 years, and just wrong wilson sent him three. That, to me, is anti Puerto Rican. That, to me, is anti Hispanic. That, to me, is racism or discrimination. Uh, And it it is very. Uh,
1: do, a lot of senior people are not really involved in the uh, in, in Albany right now, and in the city. And uh, the Hispanic population uh, in uh, New York is the highest ever.
8: How, how do you figure that out? Well, we are moving on. We are, we are, we are growing, and not only that, not only we're growing, junk. Uh, I mean, we are more, the Hispanic are learning how to vote Republican. The Hispanics are abandoning, leader by leader, the Democratic Party. They're fed up. And you could check the statistics. You could check the, the the last voting result. I mean, the Hispanics are learning how to jump ship and vote Republican. And the Democrats, with all these things that they're doing to us, If they don't change, they're going to lose the Hispanic community.
1: Well, uh, like I said, happy birthday this weekend. I hope today is the beginning of a change uh, 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 in New York State. And I'm there with you standing side by side. WABC is there with you standing side by side to make sure that the uh, Latino and Hispanic community get uh their fair share
8: of I, a thank voice. You. I thank you for your support of the Hispanic community for the support of every community. I thank you for whatever what you have done in this in this city and always supporting the the, the, the and criticizing the injustice. You are, you are, we need more people than you, young women. Honestly, we need more people than you. And I hope that one day you come to the Bronx, meet with the Hispanic ministers. And uh, because we have a big, we have a big organization of Hispanic ministers. And we're learning, we're talking, we're moving. If God willing, we will be victorious in the future.
1: Thank you so much. And we'll see you real soon. And uh, uh, we'll celebrate your birthday together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. With us today is Governor David Patterson. And uh, so many things are happening in our city, in our state. And there's no one better that knows what the heck is going on. Governor, you were governor, you were lieutenant governor. uh, You were uh, uh, minority leader uh, of the state senate. Uh,
7: Have you ever seen such confusion in a long time? Well, there's a lot of confusion, but what I also haven't seen in a long time is the blatant honesty that uh, was displayed by the mayor of the city of New York on Wednesday. And it was against the backdrop of uh, all kinds of charts that he had, along with his senior staff members. And Mayor Adams said that to date, New York uh, City has lost $817 million because of the support that it's had to give to the migrants who are allowed to come here by the federal government. He says that by June 30th, it will be $1.4 billion hit against the budget, and in 2024, it will be a $2.9 billion hit against the budget unless somebody does something. Now, classically, the White House's response was that FEMA was doing something, or other, which didn't make much sense, but then they blamed Congress for not passing... Um, needed uh, immigration reforms in the Senate and in the House. Now that's a total punt on the issue. When uh, you're you're supporting a topic, one of the mayors of the major cities who are taking the hit by having all the migrants there, and and uh, Mayor Adams feels that they should grant uh, grant tempor- a temporary status to people so that they could work while they're migrants in the city. Uh, because he says there's a black market now, and a lot of people are working in, the, you know, kind of sweatshops that we've been more familiar with 100 years ago. And their response to him is that Congress needs to pass legislation, passing the buck. Then you have the Progressive Caucus of the City Council. Um, I'm sure you go to their meetings all the time, John. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but uh, they said that the mayor has misestimated the revenues. That is the classic argument you make when you just want more money. In other words, that when you estimated the revenues and then assessed it against the debt, um, that you didn't estimate the revenues high enough. That's how legislatures in the city and the state have gotten away with murder for 30, 40 years of playing that kind of game. Not to be left out, the New York City Council now has um, its proposals to the mayor, which have Uh, a lot more resources and criticizes what he calls efficiencies, but really were budget cuts, which they called defunding social services. Well, it is in a way, but what is happening is that our governments in the United States and states, and then locally are suffering right now from the difficult economy we're in, the higher prices to get people to do anything, and um, the uh, inflation not going away. Well, uh, you know, when you talked about New York and uh, that the
1: uh, White House in Washington is ignoring New York, it brings back moments. When was it, the 1970s, where the front page of the newspapers in New York
7: was, uh, Washington says New York dropped dead. It actually said that President Ford said to New York, drop dead in October of 1975, which is when the uh, fiscal crisis began. And uh, as a little side note, just a a story in my life. At the time, I had gotten a job working for municipal credit union. That's the credit union for the employees of the city of New York. But it is a private company. But because it says municipal, all the state workers thought that um, it was the city. So when I called them up to ask them when they were going to pay their loans back, boy, did my vocabulary get expanded by some of the responses I got. And one guy said, I said to him, well, would you like to come down and refinance your loan? He said, if I come down there, I'm gonna I'm gonna hurt somebody. And he said, and what was your name by the way? I said, uh, Mr. Gonzalez, if you come down, just ask for Mr. Gonzalez, because I didn't want to talk to this guy when he came down. It really hit the city workers hard, that crisis in 1975, and Washington did not respond to it at all. Understood. Now, um,
1: Governor, uh it's been going on for, what, two weeks now?
7: Or is it longer? The late budget? Yes. Of the state? So the state has a late budget, and um, I know I'm repeating myself and re-quoting him, but Governor Pataki said a couple of weeks ago when we had him on um, with uh, Katz and Cosby that a a good budget is better than a late budget. Well, he had a lot of late budget, so he would say that, but it's actually right if you can come to the right compromise. But the problem is... After a while, after two weeks, three weeks, or, you know, four weeks, there's just such a, uh, just a, such a dolorous attitude in, in Albany and a feeling of, of just forlornness that people just don't get things done. They don't try that hard anymore. And uh, then you have these prolonged uh, budgets. Now, interestingly enough, the majority leader of the Senate, Andre Stewart-Cousins, was the one elected official that did say that she thinks more money needs to be given to new york city to try and address this issue with uh with migrants that are in 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 the uh area so that was um i think a positive message that mayor adams got for his press conference but i would have to say that even that when it's in the same party it's very hard i think mayor adams likes uh president biden very much but sometimes Your fiduciary duty, your moral duty is to your constituency, and he feels that the uh, 9 million people of the city of New York are not getting a fair shake from Washington.
1: Well, I I agree with that because those migrants are just coming over the border, and uh, there's no checks and balances. There's no controls. No, I believe in immigration. I think you know that. Uh, but I think we have to control and make sure we're not we're not getting uh,
7: terrorists and we're not getting uh, uh, bad people. Right. And and I think also the capacity to get people the opportunity to work while they're actually here um, limits the, the those who there's nothing else to do. And they start committing crimes and that raises the crime rate and creates a real negative atmosphere.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Governor. Um,
7: how long do you think it can go on? Can it go on another week or 10 days or what? Oh, I think that this budget will not be passed until mid to late May. That, that's when I think Wow, it, it's going to be a while. And I, have they extended the budget for temporarily? They just passed an extender this week. And what it does, for those who don't understand, is it allows the government to continue at the same rate that it was when the budget should have been passed on April 1st. So it's an extension, and it, be, uh, it it's then superseded when the budget passes. So all of the decisions that are made about 2023-24 go into effect at that time. Okay, uh, Governor uh, Patterson, thank you so much for bringing us up
1: to date, and uh, we'll catch up again uh, real soon. Let's pray for our city. Let's pray pray for our
7: country. And, 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 and we wish you the best, John. I think you've been on the air every day this week. Isn't that true? I, I, I haven't had a day off in a long time.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Edition of the Cats Roundtable. After the news, stay tuned for the National Edition and get some real news.